Good afternoon. We're in John 7, and we'll be reading the first 24 verses. Thank you for the encouragement for last week. It was a lovely passage of Scripture, Lord, to whom shall we go? We come to John 7. Uh, let us pray as we come to God's Word, and I'll read the Scriptures and pray the Scriptures. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This life is temporary, O Lord. Your word is forever. Speak. For your people are listening. Speak, O Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text comes from John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marvelled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in, in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You've often heard the saying, I'm sure, you cannot, do not judge a book by its cover. Well, the saying is doubly true if you judge a book by the cover you gave it. It's bad enough if you judge someone without really getting to know the person. It's even worse 
if you're already determined by all your prejudices or by your conclusions to define the person no matter what they say or do, that you already have them figured out. And anything and everything they do confirms your own bias. Sometimes you have it figured out in your head who somebody already is. There is nothing they can do. Because you determined from the second that they set foot in your living room or the street where you met them, what those in-laws were going to be like or what that son-in-law or what that daughter-in-law or what that pastor, that new pastor or that new congregation attender or whomever. Because you've judged the book by the cover. And not only that, you gave the book that cover. And there is nothing they can do to get another cover. That's what they did with Jesus. And Jesus brought home this point in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. His brothers already know what sort of Messiah they want him to be. The Jewish leaders already know what sort of false teacher they are sure he is. And they are content, like many of us, to judge by appearances instead of making the right judgment. That is the heart of the matter. And you see, in the last verse, there is a form of the word judge three times in one verse. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So how to make a right judgment? Because everyone, you included, who comes into contact with Jesus, renders a judgment upon him. We have all come into contact with Jesus. We have all heard something about Jesus. Maybe you have heard lots of things about Jesus. By the time this sermon is over, you will know something about Jesus. And everyone who has ever come into contact with Jesus renders a judgment. You have to. You cannot escape him. You cannot escape it. You may conclude that he is a fraud. Or you may conclude he is not worth your time. Either way, it's a judgment. Every one of you has heard about Jesus, has heard of Jesus, and has reached a verdict on Jesus. Is it the right verdict? Is it a right judgment or is it based on mere appearances or your own prejudices? In chapter 7, they're making their judgment on appearances. Let me give you three reasons why the people in Jesus' day misjudged him. And you may find in one of those three reasons, or all of them, some of your own heart. And why you or someone you love has misjudged Jesus. Number one, they misjudged Jesus because they did not know where he was from. Look at verse 1. It says after this. So it means it follows on the heels of what we read last time. Chapter 6. It isn't an exact chronological marker. It is probably five months or so later. Because in chapter 6 verse 4 we're dealing with the Passover. And in chapter 7 verse 2 we're dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles. Or the Feast of Booths. Sukkot in the Hebrew. Which has been five or six months after so six is passover seven is feast of booths so you get it's a little time the feast lasted for seven days from the 15th to the 21st of the seventh jewish month of tishrei in october 
roughly September maybe, Harvest Fest. And on the eighth day, there would have been a solemn assembly. It was the most popular, according to Josephus, of the three main Jewish pilgrimage feasts. It forms a backdrop for chapter 7. So after this, at the Feast of Tabernacles, we pick up the story several months later. Jesus continues to go about in Galilee because, as we see, he knows that in Judea, Galilee, in the north, Judea, in the south, things are going to be too hot for him. And the capital is in Judea, Jerusalem. Many of the Jews, in particular the Jewish leaders, want to kill Jesus. Sometimes it is said that they wanted to kill Jesus because he was so wonderfully inclusive and he was just throwing out, the, open the floodgates of God's mercy and love and there's an element of truth to that. He was certainly more welcoming than they wanted him to be. But the real reason that they wanted to kill Jesus is because he had violated their traditions and he made himself equal with God. They hated Jesus theologically. They hated Jesus because of his identity. And Jesus knows that it's going to be dangerous if he went down in the midst of this feast to Jerusalem. There's an apparent contradiction between verses 8 and 10. In verse 8 he tells his brothers, you go to the feast, I'm not going. In verse 10, after his brothers had gone to the feast, he also went up. But I want to direct your attention to verse 14. When he's at the feast, in the middle of the feast, he shows up at the temple and begins to teach and they marvel. Verse 15, how is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? And you need to understand what they understood to be authoritative rabbinical teaching. Rabbinical teaching in the first century was an intricate study of quoting your ancestors. The rabbi says this versus this rabbi says that. And you can read through something like the Mishnah, which collects some of the rabbinical tradition from these first centuries. And you can see that Rabbi Belilazer says this about the Sabbath, and then Rabbi Ben Elijah says this, and it's the constant quoting of rabbis. Jesus knows his Bible and speaks with authority. And his aim was not to quote authorities because he was the authority. So he explains that his authority comes from a different source, from a higher source. Verse 16, Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. Jesus has an authority far greater than any of their schools or traditions. And then in verses 17 and 18, Jesus makes these remarkable statements. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, you wonder how I can speak to you without ever having been to the proper schools. If you're really interested in God's will, if you're really interested in doing what God says, Jesus says you'll recognise that he speaks from the Father. The implication is that if you do not see that Jesus speaks from God and for God, then you're not interested in following God. Or put yourself in the mind of a first century Jew while this was so unbelievably controversial because he's insisted on this divide. You're with me or you're against God. Which is it? Because if you're with God, you will be with Jesus. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. In other words, you can count on everything Jesus is saying because 
Jesus is not saying it for his glory, he's saying it for the Father's glory, and the Father only speaks what is true, and Jesus is only speaking what the Father gave the Son to say to you. And yet they did not know where he really came from. Even in the last chapter, remember they were marvelling, well we know his dad and mum, we know his brothers. We just encountered his brothers at the beginning of the chapter. They didn't know where he really came from either. Do we really believe that Jesus was sent from God? It is a matter of faith. Now you can understand a little bit of the Jews. Who is this man? Sometimes we can be too much like these religious leaders. We want to see a degree. We want to see academic learning. We want to see the right schooling. Well, I believe in schools and degrees and the right education, but only if it helps us speak for God. Not if it enables us to pump ourselves up or to speak in our own strength and rely on our own tradition. We're not interested in that. And so they do not really know where Jesus is from. Do you? Who he really is, where he really came from. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Whether you believe him, whether you listen to him, whether he was a crazy man, or is he the Christ? Is he the son of God sent from the father? They did not know where he was from. Secondly, they did not know where he was going. They didn't know where he was from. They didn't know where he was going. Go back up to verse three. His brothers say to him, leave, you know, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself. Show yourself to the world. Now here, it, here is what they were thinking. Remember where we left off in chapter 6, verse 66, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we've had this kind of sifting. The crowds have dissipated somewhat. Some of the peoples have said, Jesus, the things you're saying is too hard. I do not understand them. I do not like it. So we're leaving. Now his brothers, his physical half-siblings, they have an idea. Go to Jerusalem. It's the start of the feast. We want you to go there, Jesus, and do your stuff. Do the miracles. Now notice what it says in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They wanted a rabbi of their own making. They wanted their own kind of messiah. They wanted a wonder-working prophet to wow the crowds, build his brand, expand his platform. And the Bible calls that unbelief. And Jesus was not following their script. Even his own flesh and blood did not know where he came from. They did not know where he was going. They're still thinking that the test is numbers. Draw the crowds. That is not what Jesus meant to do. Which explains this apparently discrepancy between verse 8 and 10. In verse 8, where Jesus said, said you go up to the feast, I am not ready. My time has not yet come. He remained in Galilee in verse 9. And in verse 10, after his brothers had gone up, he also went up. Verse 8 is Jesus saying, I'm not going to the feast for your reasons. I'm not going to the feast your way. He does go in the middle of the feast, not to put on a show, not to put on a wonder-working show, but to teach. Notice he does not go to do what they want, to put on a show, but to do what he has come to do, to teach. There has never been, an, there is never an example in the Gospels of Jesus going into a town with the purpose of healing and casting out demons. He does a lot of both. To, 
to show himself and his true identity and because he has compassion on the crowds. But he never goes with the purpose of setting up a healing tent. He never goes to say, stand in line and I will cast out your demons. In fact, we read the opposite, Mark 1, 38. Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. His particular mission and method was proclamation. Jesus said, I'm not here to do your show, to do your lightning bolts and your shock and awe. I'm here to teach because he knew it was not yet his time. He was going to die, but not now. That time was drawing near. This is his third and last trip to Jerusalem before the triumphal entry. And we'll see that he's going to stay in Jerusalem for two months because he will stay until the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10. We're only in chapter 7 of John's Gospel out of 21 chapters, but already his public ministry is drawing to an end. It won't be long before we're into the final week of his life. Because unlike a traditional biography, the point of Jesus's life is ultimately Jesus's death. And it will not be long before we're already into the final week of his life and they do not understand where he is going. You think they're offended now? They did not understand his ultimate purpose. Fulfilling the father's plan would mean dying a criminal's death and they do not get it. Not even his brother's. One commentator made the, the astute observation, you know, that many a person has been buoyed up in the midst of suffering by having their closest family and friends to support them in their noble cause. But Jesus does not have even that. He is a bumbling group of disciples who will scatter on their own. And here his own half siblings in their unbelief would send him to an early grave, but they have no idea the grave that he must inhabit. His brothers had a plan for Jesus. This is the book that we've written for you. Now go fulfill it. That was the plan from his brothers. We have a wonderful plan for your life. And if we're honest, how often do we demand the same of Jesus? Jesus, this is what I would do if I were you. Jesus, I have written out a great vision for the church. Jesus, I have a great idea what you should do. I have a plan for what you should do in my life. I have a plan for what you should do in the life of the church. I have a plan what you need to do with my children. I have lots of ideas and plans, Jesus. Why are you not filling out my plans? I wrote the book for you, Jesus. Jesus writes the book for us. We do not write the book for him. But many of us act as if it was the opposite. His brothers in that moment were convinced that they knew what Jesus should do. Just like so many of us, we're convinced that Jesus should just listen to us for a change. We have it figured out here, Jesus. Jesus, let me tell you what I would do. Jesus, you're not doing this the right way. Jesus, you're not doing this in the right speed. Your plans don't make sense to us, Jesus. Look, you can go and fix this thing. Just do a few Rocket launchers. We all know how ridiculous that sounds, except that's what we do. And Jesus, as it is so often the case, has his own timing and his own way. And it is the right timing and it is the right way. But at this point, they do not know where he is from and they do not know where he is going. And there's another thing they don't understand. They do not like what he has to say. They don't know where he's from, they don't know where he's going, and they don't like what he has to say. 
Go back up to verse 7. This is a hard word. And notice he's saying it to his brothers, to his own flesh and blood, the people that he grew up with. He's not speaking to strangers. He's speaking to his brothers. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it, about the world, that its works are evil. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, my time has not yet come. Your time will always be here. That's why you can go up to the feast. You do not understand. If I go to the feast, and if I do it in your place, sorry, in your time, in your way, I'm very liable to be killed because so many people hate me. You can go up to the feast any time you want. Do whatever you want because no one hates you. Now, think about that. Think of all the hard things that Jesus has to say. This is right towards the top of them to say to your own brothers, the world cannot hate you. And because the implication is the world cannot hate you because you belong to the world. So let me ask you a question. Does the world have reason to hate you? Some of us, though, we wouldn't put it in these terms. We go through our whole life with a singular objective that no one in the world would ever hate us. And we conduct ourselves in business that way. We shape our beliefs that way. We form our opinions that way. Whatever we have to do, let it be that the world would love us. And Jesus said, you have nothing to fear because the world doesn't hate you. The world hated Jesus. And if we are his followers, there will be an occasion for the world to hate us. By what we say about sexuality, by what we say about the world, by what we say about sin, by what we say about the wrath of God. By what we say about many things that the world says the opposite. And when you read there in the second half of verse 7, why did the world hate Jesus? And do not get an inappropriate kind of martyr complex. There is a fine line between being persecuted and just being obnoxious, just being strange for the sake of being strange. The world hated Jesus because he testified that the world's works were evil. There is a way to lose friends and not influence people, that is. Does the world have reason to hate you because of what you believe about sexual immorality or sensuality or the things you will not watch online or the kind of language you do not use? Does the world hate you because you refuse to dishonour your father and mother? Even if the world says that it is a divine rite of passage to rebel against your parents. The world hates you because you do not fall in step with racial prejudice, economic class prejudice. Does the world hate you because you will not bow down to the idols of greed or covetousness or narcissism or simple pride? John Calvin says among even the vices of men, the chief and most dangerous is pride and arrogance. Make no mistake, verse 7 ought to stop us in our tracks. What a sad thing for Jesus to say, the world has no reason to hate you. Of course that you're going through this world with just pats on the backs, little applauses here and there. You do everything the world loves. John Calvin said that peace with the world can only be purchased by a wicked consent to vices and every kind of wickedness. In John 15, Jesus makes clear the world loves its own. And that's the point Jesus is making with his own brothers. He says you are part of the unbelieving masses. Of course the world will not hate you. Of course you can do whatever you want at whatever time you want in the feast. 
The world loves you. The world loves its own. And you belong to the world. I pray the Lord would never say that about me. And then the controversy surrounding Jesus intensifies even more when he does travel down to Jerusalem. And we pick things up in verse 19. He introduces Moses and the law. And of course, a great source of pride for the Jewish leaders was that they had received the law of Moses. He brings up the subject, however, to expose the intentions that some of them have to violate the Mosaic law by murdering him. He is saying that you love the law of Moses, but your intent in your heart to violate the sixth commandment and kill me. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, do you have a demon? Who is seeking to kill you? Probably not a literal accusation of demon possession, but it was their way of saying in the first century, Jesus, you're paranoid. Jesus, you're crazy. So he reminds them of how angry they were after he had healed the paralyzed man. That's what he means when he talks about the one work that I did. Going back to John 5 and verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So yes, some of them were intent on killing him. How could you do this? You healed a man on the Sabbath. Do you think you're equal with God? And in chapter 7, Jesus is making a familiar rabbinical argument from the lesser to the greater. You see, infant boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if the eighth day happened to be on the Sabbath, they would be circumcised on the Sabbath. And the idea being the rabbinical argument was that great is the circum great is circumcision that it overrides even the rigor of the sabbath so it wasn't that they were breaking the sabbath per se but they understood as we all should when reading the bible that some principles take precedence over other principles so here it was not a violation of the sabbath to circumcise a boy on the sabbath and jesus says if he can be made well ritually on the sabbath why can he not make an entire man well on the Sabbath. He was exposing their own pretensions. He had reckoned them to be evil, sanctimonious, self-deceived, hypocritical lawbreakers, at least the worst of them. So it's no wonder that Jesus finally says, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so here are the questions for us. How are you judging Jesus? Every one of us has made a verdict on Jesus. You have. And even if you joined the church years ago, every day you make a judgment on Jesus. Is he someone you really need to listen to? Is he someone who really calls the shots in your life? Is he someone worth living for? Is he someone worth dying for? Are you prepared to let Jesus surprise you every now and then? I do not care how long you've been walking with Jesus. If you're walking with him and you are really walking with him you will always learn new things you're going to have surprises you can be married 50 60 70 years and you think you know everything and you still learn new things you still experience new things with jesus that's what it means to walk with jesus are you judging him with the right judgment or have you already mapped it out and put the nose on and put the glasses on and put the wig on and said this is what jesus looks like he always looks like that because these are the clothes that I dressed him up in. Are you willing to let Jesus be himself on his terms? 
When is the last time you learned something new or experienced something new about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So let me just talk to two different kinds of people this afternoon. If you are not a Christian, you know that you're not a Christian. You may know you're not a Christian and no one else knows that, you're not, that you know that you're not a Christian, but you know. Are you making a right judgment about Jesus? Do you know where Jesus came from? Do you know where Jesus is going? Do you know that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead? If you have determined that he's not worth your time, if you have determined that it's all a fake or a phony or a fraud, then at least come clean with that understanding. Do not make the mistake of waffling in the middle, pretending to be something you are not, acting as if you've based your life on something you do not really believe. Oh, my friends, make a right judgment about this Jesus. And then to the second group of people, those of you who are Christians, it is, it, is it possible that you have not really reckoned with all the hard things that Jesus might have to say to you and to me? Have we made him too nice of a Jesus? Have we become too comfortable with this Jesus? He never shocks us, never surprises us, never offends us. It would be a tragic thing to be like his brothers in this text. They were close to him. They knew him. They were impressed by him. They were interested in him. They liked him. And ultimately, Jesus said they were on the side of the world. Oh, I pray that the Lord would not say to me what he had to say to his brothers. But in the end, are you the most important question of all? Are you going to be counted among the saints? Can you sing with the saints in glory? Do you allow Jesus to call the shots? Do you follow Jesus wherever he will lead? Oh, soberly, will we be among those who have judged a book by the cover? That we gave it. I pray that you may come to know Jesus. The risen Lord Jesus. The precious Son of God. For his name's sake. Amen.